or if you've ever been on a cruise and you see how vast the ocean is, and when you sit there and you let it sink in how vast that is, it can be overwhelming. Anybody had that experience before? Amen. And I love that song because it captures how vast God's love is. God's love is more vaster, actually. I don't even know if that's a word. Vaster than the oceans. Amen. That's something to think about. In a culture where our love for ourselves is wrapped up in our possessions, is wrapped up in our status, is wrapped up in the false beliefs that people have given us or said over us during the course of our journey of our lives. But this song, in the words of Scripture, in our tradition as Christians, is that God's love is vaster than the cosmos. God's love is vaster than reality. God's love is vaster than the known universe. That is something to hold on to. If anything this morning, hold on to that. God's love is vast. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Good morning, everyone. That song did something to me there at the end. Praise God for all of you. Amen. For our guest, I'm, my name is Anthony Smith. I'm teaching pastor here at Mission House. And this morning we start a new series, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, there will be some homework at the end, as always. Sometimes, you know, we have homework. I'm um, sorry about Mission Lab folks. Y'all have double homework because we have homework from last week. Amen. If you not know about this, we started Mission Lab this past week. Uh, the doors are still open to the lab, so if you want to venture in and dive into the Gospel of John with us, last week was an amazing uh, time together in John's Gospel. We really dug into the Word, into our lives, into the story of the world around us, and how the Gospel of John was preaching us and sending us into the world. That's something powerful. Imagine that, a church slowing down and patiently taking and eating the word of God. Mm. That's a verse of in and of itself. Amen. So let me start this morning. We start our, our series this morning, Heal the City. Uh, we've been putting it out there about uh, uh, this idea. Really, it started a long time ago, several months ago. Me and Dustin were having this conversation, and this ongoing conversation around healing. And I think it started around the time when we had created we had made the anointing oil. Y'all remember that when we had the anointing oil? And we were talking about how anointing oil in the Christian tradition, in the Jewish tradition, uh, is symbolic of God's healing uh, power uh, in human life. And so, you know, in the Christian practice, uh, that, you know, it says in the book of James, call forth the elders of the church, you know, lay hands on the sick for their healing, anoint them with oil for healing. And so we began this conversation around healing on a personal level, which God does heal on a personal level. If you read any of the Gospels, you see instances where Jesus healed people on a personal level. Sometimes you just give the command, and somebody will run home, they'll find a loved one healed. Sometimes Jesus could be walking the street, people just grab the hem of his garment, they will be healed. Jesus would just say the word, and they would be healed. Jesus would lay hands on people, they would be healed. And then if you read the Gospels and unpass the Gospels into the book of Acts, into the rest of the New Testament, you see that his followers were graced to do the same thing. Jesus said this, he says, he says, greater works you will do than me. Jesus said that. God made flesh said that. So we've been talking about healing and so this series, I'm pretty excited because this is going to be more than just personal healing that we're going to be talking about. Because the name of our series is Heal the City. A city, of course, is comprised of persons and peoples, but it's also comprised of groups, institutions, beliefs, ideologies, philosophies, people, children, elders, youth, middle-aged people. Was that Siri? Sorry. I could, this could be a segue for a funny Siri story, but I won't, I won't do that. Somebody actually, I work at Social Security Administration, and somebody called me this week, um, very desperate, and 
they were arguing with me about policy, uh, social security policy, about our rules. And she's outlaying all these different policy suggestions about this need that she has, this person who had called me at work. And so I'm arguing with this person about policy. Now, I'm the one who works with Social Security. <laughs> that happens a lot. Tony would tell you, like, you know. But so I'm like, did you get this from our website? She was like, no. I said, where'd you get this from? Siri. <laughs> For all you young people, Siri is not an authority on human existence. I just want to put it out there. Sorry, Apple. Right? Amen? So thank you, Siri, for interrupting my, my message this morning. Amen? But in a way, healing. So healing is also personal in our bodies, in our psyches, in our psychology, our emotions, but it's also about healing in our families, healings in our neighborhoods, healing in our cities, healing in our county, and healing in our state and world. And so one of the things that we've been talking about for, at Mission House for a very long time is returning back to the roots of the gospel in a world, oftentimes in a religious Christian world, that tells you that the end game for Christianity is one of two things. The end game is simply either the afterlife or the rapture. Now, Christianity teaches resurrection. That's another whole discussion. But what we do see in the scriptures over and over again, starting with the Gospels, actually going all the way back to the Old Testament, going through the New Testament, we see this idea, this theme that God has not abandoned the world to sin and oppression and brokenness and injustice, but that God, since the garden, since the first humans fell, that God has initiated a mission of healing, of saving, of liberating the creation from the bondage of human sin. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says it so eloquently. He says, I am healing the nations. The apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God was in Christ waiting for the rapture. No, that God was in Christ reconciling, restoring, and healing all things back to himself. In Colossians chapter 1, it talks about God through Christ where heaven and earth become one. God is healing the world. Turn with me to our passage this morning. First, Second Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll be reading verses 11 through 16. If you could read with me, can everybody see the passage on the screen? If you could read with me. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had exceeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord in his own palace. The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. God's word for God's people. Lord, bless your people today. Bless the reading and hearing of your word today, God. Send us out powerfully, bravely into your world to, to uh, send healing in our community. 
Amen. So, this weekend is MLK weekend. There's a story about King that many of you may or may not know about. Um, but this is during the time and early in King's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, career as an activist, as a civil rights leader, as a, uh, a preacher of the gospel, that he began to understand the gospel was way more than just personal salvation, but that God was healing the world. Um, if you all recall, he began that during when? In Montgomery, right? He had graduated from, uh, from Boston University, and he had got his Ph.D., and he had his first pastorate in Montgomery in Alabama, and I think he was only, if I'm not mistaken, he was either 23 or 25 years old. A lot of people don't know this, but King graduated college when he was 17 years old. He graduated college when he was 17 years old. Can you imagine that? That was before early college. <laughs> so he clearly was a child prodigy, right? He was a special kid. And so, um, and so he, he began his first pastor in Montgomery, and he was just getting started with pastoring a very upper middle class black church uh, where all the... The, uh, the, the, the halves of the black community, the uppity, uh, you know, as we say in the black community, the uppity Negroes went. That's what they would say. I mean, that's their own description of the church. And so King was there, you know, fresh young uh, seminarian with his, uh, with his doctorate, preaching uh, every Sunday at this church. And so what happened was, y'all know the story, uh, Rosa Parks uh, emerges. She's arrested for the incident on the bus. And then there's a meeting called in the community. And so King is fresh. He's invited by Ralph Abernathy uh, to, uh, to become a part of the meeting. This is an initial meeting about what they were going to do, uh, the Montgomery Improvement Association. If you get a chance to study that, look that up when you get a chance, a little history there. And so there was this group already informed around civic engagement, around how can we make our community better, how can we uh, fight for justice and raise the banner of equality in our community. And so King was invited by his friend Ralph. Uh, to this meeting, and he had no interest at all in joining any kind of movement or anything. He just wanted to see, get a pulse for the community, like any pastor should do, get a pulse for the community, right? It's not good to just be held up in the four walls of the church. And so as a good pastor, he went and got the pulse of the community. And so while he was sitting there, it went from a pulse to like, you're going to lead us. Totally unexpected. Wasn't anticipating that. He was just in order to get some numbers, connect with folk. Ends up leading the movement. And then they said this to him, oh, yeah, you got to give a speech tonight. You got to rally the people. And it was strategic upon that leadership's part because the powers that be, the white supremacist power structure in Montgomery at the time did not know who King was. And so the leadership there who had been there for a while were wise, and they took somebody who was not familiar to the powers. And so they said, hey, it would be good we had somebody who was outside the matrix to lead uh, this effort. And so King went, began the movement, they began to organize, and it wasn't just him who was organizing it. It was several other people that I, want, I don't want to get into right now. There were a whole lot of people that were part of that movement. And so at one point, you know, King was like excited. The people were energized and people were not catching the bus. They were walking. They created their own taxi system where different families were giving people rides all over the city. And uh, people were sending shoes from all over the country to there so people can have walking shoes to walk to work, to walk to get their groceries. And so King, in his mind, he's thinking, okay, this is going to last for a couple of days. And we're going to win. Days went to weeks. Weeks went to months. Then the death threats came. Leave this city or die. And so, it's one thing to step into unknown waters. It's one thing to be surprised to be called to lead an effort to make your community better. But it's quite another thing when you're called to lead something and your life has been placed in danger. Not just your life, but your wife and your children, your family, your friends. And so the movement began to grow. Uh, the pressure, the death threats began to mount. 
dozens of death threats a day, people calling his house, calling his friends, calling his fellow organizers. And so it got to the point where King was just completely overwhelmed. You got to understand, this man is in his mid-20s. People forget that age thing. Right? He was like, like the age of my son. I can't imagine my son under that kind of pressure. Leading a movement and then getting death threats from people. So King <clears throat> gets to the point where he's despairing, and he's beginning to uh, second guess his own leadership. You can understand that. He's only 20, mid-20s, so you can understand, right? When you're in your 20s, well, you know, sometimes even in your 40s, right, you doubt your own ability to do something, right? So he began to second guess, and so there was a, a scene in one of his books, uh, a sort of autobiographical, that he wrote uh, he talks about this, this, this moment when it reached the apex on a Friday night in January 27, 1956. King slumped home, another long strategy session under his belt, and found Coretta asleep. He paced and knocked about, his nerves still on edge, and presently a phone rang, a sneering voice on the other end. Leave Montgomery immediately if you have no wish to die. King's fear surged. He hung up the phone, walked to his kitchen, and with trembling hands, put on a pot of coffee. Amen. Give me coffee. And sank into a chair at his kitchen table. Here's what King says in his own words. I was ready to give up with my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me. I try to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I am afraid. The people are looking for me for leadership, and I stand before them without strength and courage. They too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I have come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear a quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and I will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. Three days later, his house was bombed. What I want to start with this morning about Heal the City is that there can't be a conversation about what it means to join in God's work of healing in the world around us without first talking about what it means to encounter God. And specifically, what I'm talking about in the passage here that I just read is 2 Chronicles chapter 7. What we have here in the book of Chronicles, the Second Chronicles, uh, Chronicles was a, 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 the last book of the Jewish uh, Bible, and what it was was a sweeping narrative, a sweeping story from starting with Adam all the way up to the Babylonian exile with King Cyrus. And so in the particular passage that I just read to you, this is the time when Solomon, the son of David, has constructed the temple. He has built the temple uh, for the children of Israel. And so if you recall the temple, the temple in Israel was constructed so that God's people can meet God in his house. This is where God was to be encountered. This is where God was to have been met. And so the temple in the ancient imagination of the Israelites was literally God's house. Matter of fact, if you look at the way the temple was constructed, the temple was actually constructed like the house of a king. It wasn't just a, 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 a temple in a sense of purely religious uh, function, but it was about 
God's house. And so literally, the, the temple was created like if God was the king and he had his own palace. And what would that look like? And so you had the temple court where everybody can kind of hang out, right? Then you had the place where uh, the Jews can hang out. You had the Gentiles can hang out. The Gentile court, the non-Jews can hang out. And then you had the Jewish people, the court where they can hang out. And then you had the outer court. Uh, then you had the inner court. Then you had the Holy of Holies where God's bedroom and throne resided. And so for the Jewish mind, the idea was that every year in the year of Passover, when uh, God was sent, uh, the high priest would go and render sacrifice and atonement for the people of God for the previous year's sin to remind them that God has a covenant with them, that God is a forgiving God, and to make sure that God's presence stays in the temple, they will make atonement. Because the idea was if God had abandoned the temple the, the city, the nation was vulnerable to a foreign attack. And so the Israelites, a part of their ritual sacrificial system, uh, the idea was to keep God home. It was to keep God on house arrest. If we did the right stuff, if we obeyed God, if we stayed righteous and true to the Torah, the first five books of the, uh, of, of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, then we could keep God under house arrest. And if God is present in the nation, if God is present in the temple, God is with us. God will keep us safe and secure from our enemies. And so here in this particular passage, uh, Solomon is celebrating and, and the people of God are celebrating the, the dedication of the temple, the reconstruction of the new temple uh, or, or the temple actually uh, under Solomon because David uh, wanted to build a temple, but he couldn't because he had bloody hands. Interesting. Hmm. Man, if Christians could think like that today, you can't build nothing if you've got bloody hands. You got Christians creating social policy with bloody hands. I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to leave that alone. Isn't that something? That's in the Old Testament. David, you can't build a temple. You can't build a place where I meet my people because you have killed other human beings. <laughs> you begin to see a theme already beginning there, going all the way up to the New Testament. God desires life, not death. God desires peace, not violence. And so David bequeaths that mission to Solomon. Solomon gets his call to build the temple, and so he does that. He builds the temple, and he is excited. And so God's like, oh, man, this is great. Y'all built the temple. Thanks for the crib. I love it. It's beautiful. But I got a few things to share with you that's very important if this is going to be a place where I'm meeting you, where I meet the people, where I inhabit the nation of Israel, there's something that I have to share with you. And so when Solomon is praying uh, in, in verse 40, in verse uh, 2 Chronicles 6, just before uh, chapter 7, when we enter in that, uh, uh, Solomon is praying to God and he says, Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. He's dedicating the temple to God. He's waiting for God to say, God, here's your crib. We got the furniture. We got Ikea. Everything's all set up and pretty. See how pretty it is? Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place. <laughs> you and the ark of your might. May your priest, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. Because God did love David, even with bloody hands. That's how vast the love of God is. Even today, some of us, our hands are bloody in different ways. But God still loves us. And so Solomon begins to dedicate uh, the temple, and they go into raucous praise and celebration. 
Um, this is like, I can imagine it's probably like a good old Pentecostal revival with the organ going, people dancing and shouting, singing songs, and it was a beautiful and celebratory occasion. And so the Lord appears to Solomon. And so when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord, verse 11, and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I heard you praying. I heard your celebration. I heard the invitation. I'm here. I will abide here. But I must forewarn you. There's going to be moments when you forsake me. When you step into idolatry and unrighteousness and injustice and most importantly to God throughout the Old Testament, the theme how you will reject and treat the marginalized and disenfranchised in this nation. How He says, how have you treat the least of these, my brothers and my sisters, you have done also to me. Jesus would say that. Or in the Old Testament say, how you treat the stranger, the immigrant. The poor, the orphan, the elderly, if you mistreat them, I will leave this house. I will forsake this house. And he says, and he says in verse 13, God is almost like a threat to Solomon, right? He's not, he's not giving this threat to anybody. He's giving this threat to a powerful political person. Mm. Man, I could preach in so many different ways. I have heard your prayer, Solomon. And I have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. And here's the thing, Christians. You can't make God show up anywhere. God was like, I'm just appreciative of what you've done. And I have sovereignly chosen to show up in this place. And I understand popular Christian language about setting the atmosphere or, or, or making the Holy Spirit show up. You can't make the Holy Spirit show up with what you do. Not when you're dealing with a wild, unleashed, unruly, unable to be controlled by humans God. Sovereign God, creator. And so God was like, oh, man, this is nice. I think I will show up. But then he says this. Now you gotta understand. <laughs> see, I see, 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 see. Some of my friends know me. Sometimes I can be a wet blanket on the party, right? You know, everybody's all happy and <laughs> and excited and about something, and I'll just be like, "Well, here's the truth of the matter." <laughs> so you can imagine. I can just imagine this scene where Solomon's in the temple and the people are outside, like, really excited. God's got a house. God's got a house. God's got a house. And everybody's all excited. And, and, and so I can imagine Solomon, like, you know, God's having, like, a private session. Like, come on, man, let's talk about this. And everybody's outside cheering. They got the foghorn, blowing confetti all over the place. People dancing. There's praise dancing out there in the streets, right, and just... Hey, raucous. I can imagine it being like Mardi Gras. I'm sorry, Chris, that's probably a bad image for you. For the church people, I'm talking about the good part of Mardi Gras. Sorry. I've never been to Mardi Gras. I've seen the pictures. It seemed like people are having a lot of fun. Imagine a holy Mardi Gras. PG. And so you can imagine Solomon's like, man, God is so excited. God's going to be here. He just told me he's going to be here. And then God says this, when I shut up the heavens so that there was no rain 
or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. <laughs> Party pooper. God says, when this happens, because there's going to come moments when you forsake me. There's going to become moments. Yeah, you're celebrating now my presence. Yeah, you're celebrating me entering into the temple. Yes, in this moment you are celebrating the fact that I am present to my people. But there's going to come a moment like all human beings, even some of you up in here, that you will forsake God, that you will sin, that you will break covenant. And so God is saying that when that happens and when I have to send plagues to make you understand that you ain't living right, that you ain't treating the marginalized and the poor, right when I forsake the temple I'm going to tell you ahead of time what I need you to do this is the process this is what you got to do for me to think about coming back he says this if my people Now, for my American Christians, I have to say this with all due respect and humility. He is not talking about America. He's not talking about putting God on the money and returning prayers back to school. That is not what Jesus, what God is talking about in this passage. He's saying my people, those who have been called out by my name, those who have sworn allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ. He's not talking about returning America back to some pristine Christian nation, which it never was before. You can't commit genocide and land grabs and treat black folks like property and say you was a Christian nation. You can't do that. So I, I, I had to burn that barbecue right there. I had to burn that cow. This is not what this passage is talking about. He said, my people, the global movement of the kingdom of God, his church, his body that transcends all nation states boundaries. Did you know you were part of that? Did you realize that your citizenship is secondarily American? Did you know that? That's why we ain't got no flags up here. This is one of them things. When you say Jesus is Lord, yes, we love America. I served in the military. But it has to be a Christ-shaped, kingdom-shaped love for our country. And so sometimes you have to tell your fellow Christians who are more into that narrative than the gospel of the kingdom, you got to remind them that this particular passage, which is often used to return America back to some, and to force people who are not even Christians to some kind of Christian morality. Okay, I probably lost a couple of y'all already. In other words, this is not that passage. This is for God's people. And so what happens in the worship, and so one of the things about worship is we're talking about healing and this God who's entered into this sacred space. And see, prior to the passage I just read to you, they do all the ritual, all the sacrifice, they do all the worship stuff that Israel was supposed to do. God shows up, speaks truth. But this thing I love about God, God not only speaks truth to let you know where you're currently at, God will allow, God will give you insight into how to get out of this situation. And that's what God was saying to Israel and Solomon. You're going to mess up because you're humans. And so here's the process I need to take you through to get you to a better place. And so God was like, so your sin, your unrighteousness at some point is going to break the land. It's going to leave people out in the cold. 
It's going to lead people who are poor and marginalized and forgotten outside the realms of power, outside of resources. There's going to come a point when those who have the power will hoard the power and they'll make decisions not on the common good of the whole nation, but they'll make decisions based upon their own greed of a few 1%. And so God was saying that there's going to come a moment in this land when the land is broken, the land is wounded. People are wounded. People are hurting each other. People are wounding each other. And so God is saying, here's what you need to do in order for me to step in to heal the land. He says, if my people. Oh, man. Those are heavy words. It's not guaranteed. I come from the prosperity gospel world, right? I, that's part of my spiritual birthright, so I can talk a whole lot of junk about it. That I preached that for years and word of faith stuff, and then I encountered the gospel. Just because you quote some scripture. Don't mean God going to take you out of something. Just because you say you the head and not the tail does not mean that you will become the head. God says there's some work that has to take place in order for this to occur. And he says this. If my people, scary words, that word if is scary, y'all. It's almost, it lacks certainty. It lacks confidence on, the first, on, the, on, the, on, the, on one half of it. But he says, if my people who are called by my name, Lord, help us to get to the other side of if. Amen. Lord, help us get to the other side of if. And then what does he say, y'all? He says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Seek my face. Come into the temple. Come into worship. So I'm praying for the American church. Worship has become simply entertainment. I've had folks come to me and say, Pastor, I want to come to your church. Is y'all choir good? I'm like, well, man, you're gonna, I'm sorry to disappoint you. We don't even have a choir. <laughs> Up, check. <laughs> Worship in this consumer culture in which we end. Now, mind you, now don't get me wrong because I'm, I'm an artist at heart. So I believe that if you, as a church, if you're going to do worship, do it good, right, and to the best of your resources, right? Like a church, we have limited resources here, right? So we have to make the best of what we have to make it as artistic and as creative. It is not just to show off or not to be another commodity for you to consume, some another form of entertainment for you to consume, but to inspire you, to provoke you to think and to expand your imagination of your life with God, this is why arts are important. This is why creatives are important in the church because they help the people of God expand their imagination. So that's one thing. But the preaching and the singing and the lifting of hands and the songwriting, that's part of our vision as a church to have a songwriting culture amongst our worship team where they create songs a response to God working in our neighborhoods and city. That's where Rope City came from, that, song, that the worship team sung earlier. But we don't sing, and I don't preach, or we don't preach to just make you feel good, and to hopefully you'll come back next Sunday. No, this is a response to God. And us saying to you and everybody here gathered that we are in the presence of God. Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. And what he was invoking there was the imagery of the temple that 
how God was in the temple, how God showed up in the house, in the palace of the temple, the same way God will show up amongst his people when they are gathered in his name. So we're talking about heal the city. God says to Solomon, if you don't get your worship right, I will not heal the land. If you don't get your sacrifice, if you don't become a living sacrifice, if my people do not become a living sacrifice, if my people do not do right worship, and here's the thing about worship, if we can go to the slide, worship liturgy. Worship. Another fancy cool word for worship is the word liturgy. If you come from a high church tradition, a Catholic tradition, or Lutheran or whatever, um, you know this word liturgy very well. Liturgy literally means the work of the people. Worship literally means the work of the people. Y'all like, what? I thought worship was, we just enjoyed the music. You can enjoy the music, by the way. I'm, I'm not saying we should enjoy the music. We should enjoy the music, right? But oftentimes, we have to ask, and this is something that's plagued me as, as an as a armchair theologian for over two decades now. This question has plagued me. One, why do we worship? What's all the hubbub about? And what is happening in our worship? Is it supposed to do something? Does it make God do something? Does it make us do something? What is happening in worship? And I have some startling news for you. Worship is supposed to... hmm, do something to us. <laughs> Worship literally is the work of the people. God says, in order for me to heal the land, I need my people to get their worship right. I need them to seek my face. I need them to turn from, my, from their wicked ways. And that word wicked there is an interesting word we have in popular culture, our own understanding of wicked. I don't know about you. When people say wicked, I think about witches, Harry Potter, you know, what cultural Christians say, you know, like stuff in popular culture that has really ultimately, especially like Harry Potter, like it has nothing to do with wickedness. Wickedness literally means this. How many of y'all have vacuum cleaners? Right. So yesterday, last night, Tony made me go. <laughs> it's wicked. And vacuum the living room. Right. And have you ever been vacuuming and you hit a string? Or some small cord? Right. What happens to it? It gets all tangled up. This is what the word wicked means in Scripture. Wicked means to be all tangled up in a false sense of who you are. <laughs> you thought it was just bad words and go to rated R movies. <laughs> wicked means to be caught up in a false sense of who you are, an idolatrous sense of self, to be completely controlled by your passions and your flesh. And to be so tangled up in there, you can't unwind yourself. And so God was saying, man, turn from your wicked ways in my presence. And see, one of the things about worship in the body of Christ you need to understand, worship disentangles you from your false self. Hmm. Worship untangles you. It's like God... 
flipping over the vacuum cleaner and just pulling the string out. This is what's supposed to happen in worship. Worship untangles us. Not only from what's happening on the inside of us, it also untangles us from our silence in the face of oppression. That's what I understand why we got so many Christians that worship on Sunday, but they silent about oppression in their own city. They ain't being untangled. Worship un- untangles you. Hmm. I think y'all begin to be suspicious now why worship is so important. Worship is about developing and cultivating habits for a new world that's emerging. See, see, worship is the door into another world, to a new creation. So worship is when we get to practice what it means to be a new humanity in this moment, in this setting. What does it mean to be a people swept up into the story of God, participating in God's healing mission in the world? Worship is like practice in this place. It gives you habits for a new world called the kingdom of God. Worship makes you ready to work for the kingdom. Can you imagine a people untangling themselves from false, from falsehoods about themselves, from false narratives, self-limiting beliefs, false lies that they believe about themselves? We're about to enter Black History Month. <clears throat> As African Americans, Worship should disentangle us from the lies of white supremacy that we have internalized in our own being, false lies about ourselves. That we are human. That we are deserving of dignity. That also in worship, my white brothers and sisters, that you are not consigned to guilt over what has happened, but that you have to be understand that the grace of God has equipped you to become an ally in the fight for justice in this community. Don't stay in your guilt. I'm so sorry, Pastor, what, what we did. That's great. I want you to feel sorry, but I need you to move with us. I need you to work with us. I know y'all think, hey, that's what happens when they give a brother a mic. (laughs) And my brown brothers and sisters, worship should do something to us. It should disentangle us. There's a white pastor here of a prominent church here in Salisbury. Pastor's one of the largest white churches here in Salisbury. And we were having this conversation around justice and, and healing. He said, Pastor, and this is one of the things, like, they always come to the black person, right? Like, like black people, let me, let me put this out here. Every black person is not an expert on race. Every black person is not conscious. Come on, black folk, y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So my white brothers and sisters, my brown, every black person ain't conscious. There are black people that are very much a part of the plantation. Then our own deliberation and deliverance. Hang out with me, you'll see them. Pastor, shh. There's white people in the room. I've been told this, y'all. No lie. You're too dangerous. Like, shh. You're like the angry black man. Oh. I'm not angry. I just I worship God. This is what happens when you worship God. I'm being disentangled. And so what happens next? Mm, there's so much that happens in worship, y'all. I can't even cover it all. But I will tell you this. Moving the social to the personal. See, in worship, wounded people become healers. People that have been hurt, trampled upon, 
ill-treated. Learn to become healers. Why? Because in worship, you are connecting with the God that healeth, Jehovah Rapha, the God that healeth thee. And so to come in presence of that God to be shaped and molded and provoked and challenged and experience that God, you come in with your wounds, but you leave with scars. And you have scars. Why do you have scars? So that other wounded people can see that you've been wounded before yourself. People that worship God are people with scars. Healed wounds. There's so much there, and I know churches hurt people. I totally get that. I'm one of them. I got a whole lot of church scars. Amen. If you had talked to me 10 years ago, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now because I was wounded by church hurt. But that's the thing about worship. I had to learn what worship was and what it is and what it can be in my life. I experienced healing in worship. And a part of healing is you learn the truth of what happened to your life. That's the thing about worship. Worship is not just about experiencing God, but it's also experiencing the truth of what's really going on. See, see, here's the thing about worship. God, when you go into worship, you go into the presence of one who can't, things can't be hidden from. You know how we are. There's stuff that other people don't even know about us. And this is just my own personal testimony. There's some things that some of y'all don't know about me. But I do know this. When I go into the presence of God, I'll be like, God, yeah, I got some of them fool, but uh, I can't fool you. Because you were there the whole time. It's the thing I love about God. God ain't like, see, you evil, unredeemable sinner. Not like people. People will cast you out in the outer darkness. But God says, man, I'm a little disappointed. No, I'm very disappointed, actually. But guess what? I love you. And you're going down that path of destruction. This is not the path I've chosen for you. And it's not like you're my slave, but you are my son. You are my child. And I want you to become all that I've made you to be, all that I've intended you to be. This is what it means to be holy, to be made and to be, to reflect the image of God, to be that which God has created me to be. That God says, I will not trample you. I will not cast you away, but I will be with you and I will challenge you with truth. And this is what worship does. When you are in true worship, when you truly engage God, God can speak some truth, sometimes some very uncomfortable truth. But sometimes God will speak the uncomfortable truth, but God will give powerful affirmation of who he's called you to be and what God intends for you to be. God will say, I will speak truth, but I will speak words of love. Worship gives us eyes and ears to see. God will give us eyes and ears to see. Jesus would say this all the time. He would pray. He says, God, give them eyes so they can see and ears so they can hear. See, in worship, you learn, you grab, you get a hold of, you get gifted with spiritual eyes and ears. You're able to discern the times in which we live. And more importantly, you get to be like Jesus. Jesus says this, I only do what I see the Father doing. Worship gives you eyes to see what God is doing. 
See, when we get in worship here and we're swept up in the drama of salvation and redemption and liberation, when you leave here, you should have clarity of sight and better hearing to hear what God is doing in the city, what God is doing in your family, in your neighborhood and world. You should be able, better able to discern what God is up to. Get this, check this out. Jesus also said, not only do I see what the Father is doing, but also this, the Father is working up until now. I was always curious about that. That doesn't make any sense to me. God is working up till now. Jesus saw God working. Can you see God working here in Salisbury? What is God doing? God is trying to give a heart to his people for the youth here. God is trying to energize imagination and creativity and how we could better serve our youth and give them places of meaning and participation and a sense of purpose for themselves, for a rite of passage, for ways for them to engage and to be involved with things. You want to stop the murders? You want to stop the violence? Give young people something to do. God is saying, the youth are heavy in my heart here in this city, in this county. Just some other things I'll leave for you to discern yourself. We'll get the whole thing today. Come to Mission Lab. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, disentangle them from false beliefs about themselves, false ways of being in the world in unrighteousness and injustice and indifference towards other people's suffering. God says, then I will heal the land. And in closing, we'll say this. What would it look like if we were like Dr. King? And when we got together, and worship. We got coffee over there. We were like king and worship with our coffee in hand. And we got a revelation. See, here's the thing about King's story that is so important. This was a midpoint for all my writers who are here today. Screenwriters, whoever does writing or has written fiction. We have that here or aspire to do that. There's a there's a, a, a point in the story called the midpoint. Anybody familiar with this? It's called the midpoint of the story. And what happens in the midpoint of a story, the character has gone through trials and tribulations and challenges and something happens uh, at the midpoint. They either get a deeper insight of how serious the situation is or they also get insight in how they are equipped for the task or the journey. And so what happens at the midpoint of the story, you've probably seen this, right? The character, the hero, the protagonist has met a, a, an impossible end. Like, they, they're, they're, like, like King said, my powers have ran out. I have no courage. I, I am in despair. I can't lead these people. If they really saw who I was, they will falter. They will fall to the side. And so, a true, and, and so in the story, the character is losing all heart. The character is losing all confidence and courage to keep going. And so what happens is in the midpoint of the story, something happens. A, a turning happens. A, a revelation, an insight happens. And let them know one like King that we are not alone in this world. I've graced you. I have loved you. And I love you. Yes, you're wounded. But there's a balm in Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul. I've got healing for you. God say, I know, I need you to understand what you are a part of. The midpoint. Worship is the midpoint. Every week, worship should be the midpoint of your week. When you have encountered certain things up till now to this day, some of you encountered challenges, some of you encountered your own woundedness, your, your tears, your scars, your brokenness, your whatever it is, despair, your own failings, your own sin. Worship is the midpoint. Yeah. 
when you begin to realize, one, there is forgiveness of sin. God forgives sins to release you into purpose, into holiness. The midpoint reveals that you are part of a larger movement of the kingdom of God, that God is healing the city, that God is healing the world, God is healing your neighbor, and possibly God may even be healing your enemies. It is the midpoint. It is the midpoint. The midpoint changes the direction that the character is going. In worship, our lives change direction. When you have a critical mass of people change the direction of their lives from worship, then families change, neighborhoods change, cities change. In worship, if we're swept up in God's healing mission, we become God's healing agents in our community. There's a Jewish word that the Jews had to describe what this was, what it means, and he says, tukun alam. It is a Hebrew phrase. It's all in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. In the Christian, it's the word reconciliation. Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling all things back to himself, but in the Jewish version, it's the Hebrew word tukun alam, which literally means to heal and repair the world. And so what this means is this, Worship is the midpoint when you rediscover what it means to participate in God's healing of the world. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if every church in this city understood this? Can you imagine? We'll just start wherever we can start. But can you imagine a group of people who have had their wounds turned to scars to become healers? Can you imagine people who have been transformed and transfigured to become agents of change and healing in their communities? Can you imagine God all inside these people unleashing them on the population? Heal the city. Heal the city. Heal the city. So may we be like King when we have our midpoint, when we realize the things that entangle us, when we realize God. Why do you think Paul calls us the body of Christ? That wasn't cute branding. He was serious. You are the body of Jesus in the city. You are supposed to do what Jesus did in the Gospels in real time. You are the body of Jesus animated by the Holy Ghost to demonstrate and to be a sign and the witness of God's healing in the world. So may we be like King when we reach our midpoint and we get a revelation of who we are and whose we are and where we're going and who is with us and how we are being healed ourselves from our own brokenness so that we may be a blessing to others. After that day, King, after that revelation, it's interesting, God gave him that revelation before his house was bombed. And you can imagine, see, here's another thing too. And see, when you get a revelation of what this is, that you're a part of something so powerful and so redemptive and so liberating, when you finally get it in your bones, when it's a part of who you are, when it's in your body, it's in your mind, in your heart, when the devil comes, guess what? You'll be like, ha, ha, ha. Really? Sometimes I sit back now and be like, wow, really? Wow, Okay. May we be like Dr. King at that kitchen table. May we be like Solomon in the presence of God. May we be like the numerous, nameless, 
known and unknown saints throughout history that reached their midpoint in worship with God. And they made a decision to be used by God for the healing of their community and the healing of others around them. May it be so with us. May it be so with us. Father, in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you right now, God, for your word, Father. God, we have no time. God, you have put in us a sense of urgency for our community and for our nation right now. God, this preacher has no time for triviality. But God, this is serious business. And you know this more than I do, than we do. But God, you're calling us to join with you, God, to heal this land, to be agents of healing in the midst of racial strife, in the midst of white supremacy and injustice, in the midst of abuse and drug abuse, people abusing their own bodies with meth and all kind of manner of drugs and disease, God. All kind of brokenness. God, may we as a church discern clearly what you're saying through our worship with you, God. God, let me live out what your son said, to love you, God, with all our heart, our souls, and mind. May it be so. God, may we be the people that are marked, that have fallen completely in love of who you are, God. That vast love. Teach us how to walk in it. Teach us how to give it, God, to our neighbors, to our community. God, we pray for all these things. God, forgive us of our sins as we forgive others of their sins. Lead us not into the time of trial, but deliver us from evil. God, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. God bless y'all.